We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yule Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Yeah. Nice Sunday after the freak snowstorm. That was super fun. That was super fun. Super fun. We went out yesterday just for a little bit, and we saw all of the cars that just got wrecked <laughs> from the snow. Because it was so heavy that yeah. it was just pulling cars off the road. We lost a big branch from that tree in our front yard. We had to get no. the chainsaw out to finish cutting it off. Dang. Because it was, like, blocking off the entire driveway. That's insane. And sad. Sorry, tree. It's a new month, so I wanted to say a special thank you to our patrons, Tom, Jenna, and Jennifer. Thank you so much for supporting the show on a monthly basis. Thank you so much. If you would like to get early ad-free content, like the three of them are, head on over to Patreon and sign up. If you sign up at the $5 tier, you get early access to the Can You Crack the Cramport segments, as well as any bonus episodes that we do with other podcasts. It's a pretty nice deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give a blanket trigger warning for this episode. I know I was waiting. Why? For your, I was waiting for your face. <laughs> Why? Because we're going to be discussing child abuse. <sighs> so if this, it's not going to be in graphic detail. Okay. But if the topic is upsetting to you, please do what you need to do for yourself. And if you need to skip this week's episode, we understand. Yeah. And on that note, this mm. week we are going to be discussing Mary Ellen Wilson. Okay. Is that the victim or the perpetrator? The victim. Okay. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2022 All That's Interesting article by Genevieve Carlton. 2022 JSTOR Daily article by Matthew Wills. 2018 The Vintage News article by Stephen Andrews. 2017 St. Mary's University article by Amanda Perez. 2009 New York Times article by Howard Markle, MD. 1990 American Heritage article by Marion Ede. 1990 Social Work article by Sally A. Watkins. Praecidium article, Project Chance, three Wikipedia links, and Wikitree. Right. And we will have links to all of these articles in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly... If you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. 
just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. Established in 1983, April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, which is why today we're going to be discussing the case that inspired the founding of child safety legislation in the United States and the first such organization in the world. That's incredible. And really sad that that was the first one in the world. How long did it take? We'll get into it, but yeah. Okay. So it established the first organization preventing child abuse in the world. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Gross. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's get started. That's horrible. Let's keep going. <laughs> Off to a great start. Mary Ellen Wilson was born in March of 1864 to parents Thomas and Frances Fanny Wilson in New York, New York. She was named Mary after her maternal grandmother and Ellen after her maternal aunt. Okay. Her mother, Frances Connor, had immigrated to the United States from England in 1858, and she soon took up work at St. Nicholas Hotel in New York City as a laundress. It was there that Fanny met her future husband, Irishman Thomas Wilson, who worked in the kitchen shucking oysters. That's all he did all day? Apparently. Wow. You would have such a unique smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder how many pearls he found. And she was a laundress, too, so quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. It smells. Yeah, because this was back when oysters were kind of like the poor man's food. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't as, like, ooh-la-la as they are now. Right. But, yeah, people ate oysters like crazy. I mean, I'm sure they still do, but... right. Yeah, I wonder how many pearls, if he did find any. He had to have found a couple, maybe. If that's all he did all day for a job. Yeah. You would hope so. If he never did, that'd be really sad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure he never got to keep them, but... Yeah. The pair married a few years later in April of 1862, and not long after, Thomas was drafted into the 69th New York Regiment of the Irish Brigade. Just 15 months after she was born... Mary Ellen's father, Sergeant Thomas, was killed in action on June 6, 1865, in the Second Battle of Cold Harbor in Virginia, one of thousands of victims of the American Civil War. As a result, she and her mother were left in considerable financial hardship, even with Fanny's widow pension of $2 a week, which today would be around $37 a week. Yeah, I bet it was low because so many people... Mm -hmm. lost their spouses Mm -hmm. that's all they could give yeah well and the country was broke after the war too yeah in an effort to provide for the two of them fanny worked day and night as a laundress at saint nicholas hotel to support herself and mary ellen she spent a portion of her wages on child care for little mary ellen and used the remainder to support herself She made regular visits to see Mary Ellen, who was staying with a full-time caretaker named Mary Score, who she paid her widow's pension to each week to care for her daughter. And the system worked for a while, until Fanny lost her job and was unable to provide for herself, let alone Mary Ellen. After three weeks of missed payments, Mary Score turned Mary Ellen over to the Department of Charities at Blackwell's Island in July of 1865. Her mother Fanny was told that she had died, 
and she never saw her again. Are you kidding? Mm-mm. That's horrific. Mm-hmm. How, how can you just say that she died and not have a body? Or, like, I would lose my mind over that babysitter. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. So this is the first real problem. Mm-hmm. Great. This babysitter sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I bet she got money from it. Probably, because baby farming was still pretty prolific at this time. Yep. Meanwhile, in the Mulberry Bend area of New York, a couple known as Thomas and Mary McCormick had recently lost all three of their children to disease. Thomas, who bragged to his wife about how he had three other children with a mistress, oh my God. explained that she had turned them over to the charities and they could adopt them, which Mary oh. seemed receptive to. How convenient. Mm-hmm. These better children. Mm-hmm. Great. What a what an awesome marriage. Yeah. Great. Good start. Mm-hmm. Hey, remember how like we lost all three of our kids? Guess what? I have three other ones that I made with someone else, and we can mm-hmm. totally go and adopt them and replace our other kids. Yep. Kids are just kids. Let's just get three more. They're basically like dogs. Oh my god. Just buy three more. It's fine. I hate it. I hate it so much. On January 2nd, 1866, the couple went to the Department of Charities to reclaim one of the children that Thomas's mistress had abandoned. Instead of taking one of his own kids, the couple chose Mary Ellen and adopted her illegally. She was technically indentured to them. So they bought her as a slave? Essentially, yes. Great. They weren't asked to provide any sort of proof that they were related in any way to her, except for a reference provided by their family doctor. The only requirement to her quote-unquote adoption was that they report on her condition to the Commissioners of Charities and Correction once a year. Who is this doctor? I would really like to know. That person is a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, they're long dead, so. Yeah. But even so, piece of shit. I hope they're still burning. Yeah. Really hope they're still burning. Mm -hmm. Even though she was brought to a new home under false pretenses, things were looking up for Mary Ellen. And we have to wonder if things might have turned out differently had Thomas not passed away shortly after bringing her into their home. So did, did the wife know that this wasn't his kid? Or did she not know? I don't know if she did. Okay. Because if she assumes that she's the mistress's kid, that would immediately put her in danger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she was aware that she wasn't his biological kid or not. Okay. That's not good. No. Okay. Mary remarried quickly after her husband's death to a man named Francis Connolly. And over the next seven years, Mary Ellen would endure extreme bouts of mental and physical abuse. She was repeatedly beaten, locked in a dark closet for hours, sometimes days at a time, mistreated, rarely bathed, forced to work, deprived of daylight, and not allowed to leave the Connolly home. She wasn't even allowed to get close enough to the window so someone could see her face. 
that makes sense. They need to hide the abuse. Yep. Oh, God. Chill. I have chills right now. Yeah. At this time in history, there weren't really laws to prevent children from being abused by their parents or legal guardians. Parents could raise and discipline their children as they saw fit. This was, after all, the age of spare the rod, spoil the child. Hmm. Yep. You know, that old chestnut. It's a fun one. Mm Mm-hmm. It was extremely rare that officials would be called in to interfere in family matters, which is why cases like Mary Ellen's were often overlooked or ignored. Neighbors who heard the daily screams and cries of the child attempted to intervene and alert authorities. But it wasn't until Mary Ellen was nine years old that help actually came. And that help came in the form of Etta Angel Wheeler. Do you know how long at this point Mary Ellen was with them? Seven years. She endured this for seven years. Mm -hmm. And survived seven years. Yes. That in itself, I think, is the worst. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Etta Angel Wheeler was born Marietta Angel on June 14, 1834, in Spencerport, New York, which is near Rochester. There, she was raised by her mother, Sally Angel, alongside her sister, Elizabeth Spencer. Years later, she met and married Charles Wheeler. Charles inherited a home in New York upon his father's death, so the pair moved to start their married life together. After their move, Etta worked as a Methodist missionary at St. Luke's Mission for the Poor. She would visit the poor members of her congregation and provide them with meals, donations when available, and supplies. She made a point of checking on individuals, even going so far as aiding them around their homes if needed. Her husband, Charles, worked as a reporter for the New York Daily News. He worked long hours at the paper, and the pair made the conscious decision to not have children. That makes sense. Mainly because they felt like there was already so many children out in the world that, like... Right didn't have loving homes. Not that they would, wouldn't would be a loving home, but they were like, we don't want to bring... I mean, they're both very busy people. Yeah, they didn't want to have a child just to have a child, only to yeah. essentially neglect it because of what they were doing. Yeah. People make that choice now. Mm-hmm. Etta had two routes that she was assigned as part of her missionary work the area between West 38th and 42nd Streets, and between 47th and 53rd Streets in what was later known as Hell's Kitchen. Oh, great. What a nice area. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was in the bad part of town. Mm Mm-hmm. It was during one of her routine visits of 41st Street in December of 1873 that a former landlord of the Connollys approached Etta, a woman named Margaret Bingham. Margaret shared that the Connollys had been her tenants for four years or so, and almost as soon as they moved in, the neighbors began to notice the mistreatment that Mary Ellen experienced in their care. She was kept severely underdressed in the winter, confined to small spaces in the heat of summer, beaten daily, and would be left alone for several hours at a time. Margaret stated that she had tried to intervene on several occasions, but Mary Connolly threatened to call the police on her if she tried, because then she could be tried for harassment. Yep. Margaret shared that in an effort to try to get them to stop, 
she stated that unless they ceased their ill treatment of their daughter, they would be evicted. The plan backfired when they packed up and left. Yep, because now she doesn't know where they are yep. and can't intervene at all. Yep. Within a week, Etta had managed to track the Connollys down and made a visit to their new home on Midtown West 41st Street in Manhattan under the guise that she wanted to talk to them about an ill neighbor of theirs named Mary Smith, who was suffering from tuberculosis. Okay, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. While speaking to the Connollys, Etta kept a close eye on Mary Ellen, who was located in the back of the room washing dishes during her visit. In her own words, quote, I saw a pale, thin child, barefoot, in a thin, scanty dress, so tattered that I could see she wore but one garment besides. It was December, and the weather bitterly cold. She was a tiny mite, the size of five years, though, as afterward appeared, she was then nine. From a pan set upon a low stool, she stood washing dishes, struggling with the frying pan about as heavy as herself. Across the table lay a brutal whip of twisted leather strands, and the child's meager arms and legs bore many marks of its use. But the saddest part of her story was written on her face in its look of suppression and misery, the face of a child unloved, of a child that had seen only the fearsome side of life, end quote. I really commend her for not doing anything in that moment. That yeah. would have been really difficult. Mm-hmm. to react at all. Help wasn't able to come swiftly from Mary Ellen, but not for lack of trying on Etta's part. It took three months before she was able to make any sort of progress in helping the child. Etta first spoke to Pastor Frank Jameson at the mission on how they could intervene on Mary Ellen's behalf, but she was told to leave it be. Following her discussion with Pastor Jameson, she refused to give up, and spent months trying to find some sort of agency that would help her remove Mary Ellen from the Connolly home. But all of the children's charities she reached out to told her the same thing. We can't interfere with family matters. None of them had the power to remove a child from their guardian's custody. That's crazy. Yeah. You would think even with, like, thinking of it in the most, you know, crass terms available. Mm Mm-hmm. That kid was their property first. Mm-hmm. So, even at a basic level, family matters aside, that's that was mine. I want it back. You would think that 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 I mean that horrible way of looking at it would have some sort of protection. Mm-hmm. But no. Etta even spoke with the New York police, who told her that it was against the law for them to remove a child from their guardian without sufficient evidence that a crime of any kind was taking place. Help eventually came when, under the suggestion of her niece, Etta connected with Henry Berg on April 7, 1874. Henry was born on August 29, 1813, in New York City, to Christian Berg III and Elizabeth Ivers. His father, who was a German immigrant, was a successful shipbuilder, owning his own business of Seaberg & Co., where he maintained several contracts with the government. Henry joined his father at the shipyard for a time in 1835 at the age of 22 until his father's death in 1843. Henry attended Columbia College, 
but never finished his degree, instead using some of his inheritance to travel to Europe, where he stayed for the next five years. During his time in Europe, he made the acquaintance of Lord Harrowby in England, who was the president of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. His work had a profound effect on Henry, who, upon his return to the U.S., was granted an act of incorporation on April 10, 1866, by the New York State Legislature for the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or the ASPCA. That was established before the Protection for Children. Yep. I hate everything. I hate it all. Mm-hmm. I hate it. He spent the next several years of his life establishing branches of the ASPCA across the country and into Canada. Under his leadership, the ASPCA worked on a variety of animal welfare issues, including animal transportation, horse care, slaughterhouse practices, cock and dog fighting, and live pigeon shooting. I didn't know this, but the ASPCA is the organization that came up with the concept of clay pigeons for shooting for target practice, because they used to use live pigeons. Oh my god. So they are kind of the ones that invented clay pigeons. That's insane. Yeah, I didn't know that till I researched this and I was like, what the fuck? That's <laughs> like, super I mean, that's what a clever alternative. But Yeah. But I when you said like the the kill the live killing of pigeons, I just imagined people in New York just like shooting the pigeons. Like in like, the park? Yeah. Just like screw that guy. Someone throws a bunch of breadcrumbs and then as they Come flying in, everybody's just picking them off with. (laughs) It's the Bagel Protection Act of (laughs) 1879. (laughs) Instead of, like, defending your homestead, it's defending (laughs) your lunch in New York. Defending your your bagels. (laughs) Save your bread. I just imagine, you know, like those old school... Looney Tunes, where they like shoot at their feet. Mm hmm. Like that's, it's just that. <laughs> yeah. Clay pigeons, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Henry was an active advocate during the 1872 horse flu outbreak in New York City, Ooh. stopping any transport that was being drawn by sick animals. Henry also spent a great deal traveling across the country in 1873 to speak on animal welfare. He's a lot better than what the ASPCA kind of is now. Yeah. Which is a shame, but... Yeah. I mean, it's still doing good. It's just different. Yeah. Like, during the the horse flu outbreak, people threatened to, like, beat him up in the street. Because he was, like, stopping... Oh, yeah. Like, coaches and stuff. And he'd be like, your horse is sick. You gotta get off the road, and you gotta take care of your horse. And they, like... Like, people threatened to sue him. Like, he was extremely unpopular. I'm surprised he didn't die, actually, during that. Because you're messing with people's money, too. Mm -hmm. Not being able to transport those animals. Mm -hmm. The gambling, too. Like, people who were addicted to gambling Mm -hmm. and couldn't. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he definitely made people lose their jobs. So, Mm -hmm. that's a not-so-great spot to be in. Yeah. During Etta and Henry's initial meeting in April, 
she told him everything she'd seen and heard regarding Mary Ellen's plight. Henry echoed the words of the NYPD. They couldn't remove her without evidence. But if she could get evidence, she might have a case. Yeah, but at that point, how much evidence do you need? It has to be pretty significant if they're just like, oh, you mean, just look at the kid. Yeah. Following their meeting, Etta was like a woman possessed, heading to both buildings where the Connollys had previously lived. There, she collected witness testimony and evidence of suspected child abuse. The very next day, she wrote a detailed and thorough letter to Henry that detailed all of the information and witness testimonies she had obtained regarding Mary Ellen and the Connollys. After reading what she'd written, Henry reached out to his lawyer, Elbridge T. Jerry, stating, quote, No time is to be lost. Instruct me how to proceed. End quote. Awesome. I bet that was a good lawyer, too, knowing just, like, what he was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a lawyer that knows his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just wait. Henry had detectives sent out under the guise of conducting census records in order to obtain more evidence so they could take the case to trial. Awesome. Thanks to Etta's efforts, as well as those of the detectives, within 48 hours, Henry's lawyers, Elbridge and Ambrose Monell, or Monell, were able to appear before the New York Supreme Court and present a petition to Judge Abraham R. Lawrence on behalf of Mary Ellen. The Supreme Court. They weren't Mm -hmm. messing around. No, they weren't. That's incredible. The documentation showed that Mary Ellen had been obtained illegally by the Connollys, as well as detailed the physical abuse she had endured, as well as details on her physical state after suffering years of maltreatment. The documentation included a list of witnesses willing and able to testify on behalf of Mary Ellen, concerned citizens that were convinced she was in danger of being permanently maimed or killed. Mm-hmm. Henry's lawyers requested that a warrant be issued for the arrest of the Connollys and the removal of Mary Ellen from her home and into protective custody while her adoptive parents stood trial. Judge Lawrence issued a warrant under Section 65 of the Habeas Corpus Act, which was rarely invoked. This is what's pretty awesome. So, Henry's lawyer found this completely obscure act that he was able to use, which part of reads as follows. Okay. Quote, Whenever it shall appear by satisfactory proof that any one is held in illegal confinement or custody, and that there is good reason to believe that he will suffer some irreparable injury before he can be relieved by the issuing of a habeas corpus or certiorari, any court or officer authorized to issue such writs may issue a warrant and bring him before such court or officer to be dealt with according to law. End quote. Yes. So they haven't even, they didn't even use that? That was obscure at that point? Yeah. The, wh- yeah. I, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I hate it. I yeah. hate it so much. I know. The same day that the warrant was petitioned for, April 9th, 1874, Mary Ellen was removed from the home and brought before Judge Lawrence. 
Mary Ellen didn't have any adequate clothing, so she was presented to the judge wrapped in a carriage blanket. She was so unfamiliar with life outside the Connolly home that when a police officer gifted her a peppermint stick in an effort to console her, she attempted to use it in self-defense. I feel like I want to cry. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Reporter Jacob Reese was present when Mary Ellen was brought in and described her as, quote, a bright little girl with features indicating unusual mental capacity, but with a careworn, stunted, and prematurely old look. No change of custody or condition could be much for the worse, end quote. That evening, Mary Ellen was placed in the temporary custody of the matron of police headquarters. On April 13, 1874, Mary Connolly was arrested and five indictments were read against her by the grand jury. Assault and battery, felonious assault, assault with intent to do bodily harm, assault with intent to kill, and assault with intent to maim. The day that Mary Ellen was brought into the courtroom, Jacob was also there and he noted her entrance as follows. Quote, I saw a child brought in, at the sight of which men wept aloud, and I heard the story of little Mary Ellen told, that stirred the soul of a city and roused the conscience of a world that had forgotten, and as I looked, I knew I was where the first chapter of children's rights was being written. End quote. I can't imagine what that courtroom would have been like. At the time of the trial, Mary Ellen's face and body were heavily bruised, and her hands and feet bore signs of enduring extreme exposure. She also had a fresh gash through her eyebrow and across her left cheek that barely missed her eye. Mary Ellen was allowed to provide testimony against her adopted mother, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. Should I mute myself from crying? If you want to. Okay. Quote, my name is Mary Ellen McCormick. My father and mother are both dead. I don't know how old I am. I have no recollection of a time when I did not live with the Connollys. I call Mrs. Connolly Mama. I have never had but one pair of shoes, but I cannot recollect when that was. I have had no shoes or stockings on this winter. I have never been allowed to go out of the room where the Connollys were, except in the nighttime, and then only in the yard. I have never had on a particle of flannel. My bed at night has only been a piece of carpet stretched on the floor beneath a window, and I sleep in my little undergarments with a quilt over me. I am never allowed to play with any children or to have any company whatever. Mama has been in the habit of whipping and beating me almost every day. She used to whip me with a twisted whip, a rawhide. The whip always left a black and blue mark on my body. I have now the black and blue marks on my head, which were made by Mama, and also a cut on my left side of my forehead, which was made by a pair of scissors. Oh. She struck me with the scissors and cut me. I have no recollection of ever having been kissed by anyone. I've never been kissed by Mama. I have never been taken on my Mama's lap and caressed or petted. I never dared to speak to anybody, because if I did, I would get whipped. I have never had, to my recollection, any more clothing than I have at present, a calico dress and skirt. I have seen stockings and other clothes in our room, but was not allowed to put them on. 
Whenever Mama went out, I was locked up in the bedroom. I do not know for what I was whipped. Mama never said anything to me when she whipped me. I do not want to go back to live with Mama, because she beats me so. I have no recollection of ever being on the street in my life. End quote. How did... Was that read out loud, or was that something she said? Because that... For... I'm pretty surprised at how... Yeah, she said that. She was... They stated that she was extremely eloquent for her age. And given the fact that she was not educated. Right. Like, that... Her her whole quote is shocking. Mm -hmm. Like, how did she know how to be like that? Because most kids that were abused that severely, they don't read, they don't write, they don't... Mm-hmm. Vocalize? Yeah, I don't know. Wow. Okay. Lawyers Elbridge and Ambrose brought in several witnesses to speak against Mary Connolly, including several neighbors, Etta, and former landlady Margaret Bingham, to name a few. During Margaret's testimony, she shared that she'd seen Mary Ellen locked in a room, and although she'd told several neighbors, they refused to help. She attempted to open the window of Mary Ellen's room to let in some air and she was only able to lift it an inch. She stated that the cowhide whip was locked in the room with Mary Ellen as a reminder of what awaited her if she misbehaved. It's horrific. The cowhide whip became a popular item during witness testimony. Etta shared that when she made her initial visit to the home, it had been on the table next to Mary Ellen as she washed dishes. And when she returned the next day, it was on a chair near her as Mary Ellen was sewing. When it was Mary Connolly's turn to testify, she was sarcastic and spirited. She did later admit under oath that during the seven years that Mary Ellen was in her care, she had reported on her condition to the Commissioners of Charities and Correction just two times. She also tried to excuse her actions by stating that others were, quote, ignorant of the difficulties of bringing up and governing children, end quote. Oh, so it's... It's just really hard. You have to beat the life out of your kids. Mm-hmm. Because it's just so, it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. No one understands. No one understands. No one's had children before. No. Yeah. Lose the first child. Mm-hmm. She's a unicorn. Great. Wow. Two indictments were brought against Mary. One for assaulting Mary Ellen with scissors on April 7th and the second for the continual attacks made on Mary Ellen's person between 1873 and 1874. On April 21st, 1874, after just 20 minutes of deliberation, Mary Connolly was found guilty of felony assault and battery and sentenced to one year hard labor in the penitentiary known as the Tombs. All members of the court agreed that she was guilty of wanton cruelty. It's really frustrating. That they could only do it for a year. Yep. I don't care how hard the labor was. One year. That's not enough time. Judge Lawrence appointed himself as Mary Ellen's guardian as they searched for any relatives. When none could be found, Mary Ellen was placed in the Sheltering Arms, a home for grown girls who were being trained for service, after which she was moved to the Women's Aid Society and Home for Friendless Girls. What a horrible title of a place. Right? It's so sad. The home for friendless girls. 
Wow. That was named by a man. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> you have no friends. You can go here. Right. It's literally named Home for Friendless Girls. Like, maybe you'll find one here. Loser. <laughs> oh, my God. If you make a friend, you get kicked out. Right. It's only a home for friendless girls. These homes were often full of orphans or delinquents, and Etta implored the judge that where the 10-year-old was sent was wrong. Yeah. She did nothing wrong. She's just she's quite literally just trying to survive. Yeah. And so are all those other girls. Mm-hmm. They don't belong there either. Mm-mm. Dirtbags. After conferring with Henry Berg, Mary Ellen was placed into the care of Etta, who sent her to North Chile, New York, to be brought up in a proper home under the care of her mother. After her mother passed away, Mary Ellen was raised by Elizabeth Spencer, Etta's sister, and her husband, and became their legal ward. Of Mary Ellen's time in upstate New York, Etta wrote, quote, The child was an interesting study, so long shut within four walls, and now in a new world. Woods, fields, green things growing were all strange to her. She had not known them. She had to learn, as a baby does, to walk upon the ground. She had walked only upon floors, and her eye told her nothing of uneven surfaces. But in this home there were other children, and they taught her as children alone can teach each other. They taught her to play, to be unafraid, to know her rights and to claim them. She shared their happy, busy life from the making of mud pies up to charming birthday parties and was fast becoming a normal child, end quote. That's amazing. Etta later wrote to Elbridge, the lawyer who defended Mary Ellen in court, in 1875 about her progress. Quote, She has some faults that are of the graver sort. She tells fibs and sticks to them bravely, steals lumps of sugar and cookies, and only confesses when the crumbs are found in her pocket. In short, she is very much like other children, loving, responding to kindness and praise, hating a task unless there be a play or a reward thereof, and inevitably forgetting what she does not wish to remember. <laughs> what children do not do some or all of these forbidden things. She is a favorite with nearly all the people who have come to know her. End quote. I can't say anything because I want to cry. Yeah. Mary Ellen's trial had farther-reaching consequences, with her testimony providing evidence of the need for protection of children. As a result, the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, or the NYSPCC, was formed on December 15, 1874, thanks to co-founders Henry Berg, Elbridge T. Jerry, and James Wright. It became the first in the world to act as a child protection agency. In their purpose statement, it says, quote, The undersigned, desirous of rescuing the unprotected children of this city and state from the cruelty and demoralization which neglect and abandonment engender, hereby engage to aid, with their sympathy and support, the organization and working of a children's protective society, having in view the realization of so important a purpose, end quote. In its first year, the NYSPCC investigated more than 300 cases of child abuse and has since inspired the creation of over 300 different organizations and eventually led to the creation of Child Protective Services. When was that? I note it later. Okay. I just double-checked what it was called. 
Sally A. Watkins, whose work I used as a reference, conducted extensive research on the history of child abuse and social work. And although Mary Ellen's case is undeniably one of the most well-known, it certainly is not the first. Or probably the worst. Yeah. Sally found a case from as early as the 17th century in Massachusetts. In 1655, a master was found guilty of manslaughter in the death of his 12-year-old apprentice. And as a result, he was, quote, burned in the hand and all of his goods were confiscated, end quote. Not good enough, but sure. Yep. Two other cases were noted as taking place in the 1670s that resulted in children being removed from unsuitable homes. In 1840 in Tennessee, the case of Johnson v. State charged a parent with excessive punishment of a child. Regardless, it took the horrifying case of Mary Ellen to bring the hidden and not-so-hidden practice of child abuse to the national stage. In 1962, a paper titled, quote, The Battered Child Syndrome, end quote, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Dr. C. Henry Kemp and Brent F. Steele. It highlighted ways to understand, identify, and report suspected child abuse. Less than 10 years after its publication, all 50 states passed legislation mandating the reporting of any suspected child abuse. This led to the Child Abuse Protection and Treatment Act, or CAPTA, in 1974, and has spawned several other acts and legislation to further protect children and prevent abuse such as the Family First Prevention Services Act, or the FFPSA, Protecting Young Victims from Sexual Abuse and Safe Sport Authorization Act of 2017, and the Child Protection Improvements Act of 2017. So the CAPTA Act of 1974. Created the CPS? Yes. So over a hundred years later. Yes. That really, that's infuriating. Yep. Mary Ellen would eventually care for six children, one of which was an orphan named Eunice that she later adopted. In 1888, at the age of 24, she married a widower named Louis Shute, who was 35 at the time of their marriage. The pair had two children together, Edda Spencer on April 24, 1897, and Florence Helen on May 13, 1901. Mary also became stepmother to the two children Lewis brought from a previous marriage to a woman named Lena. Jesse James, who was born March 28, 1883, and Clarence Vincent, who was born October 22, 1884. I love that she named her first daughter Etta. Etta, who was named after Etta Wheeler, mm-hmm. along with her sister Florence, went on to become teachers. Eunice ended up working as a businesswoman. Mary Ellen's children and grandchildren described her as gentle and not much of a disciplinarian. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, seriously. She's probably like, do whatever you want, Julie. Yeah. Like, live Run your life. free. <laughs> yep. She also chose to spend the bulk of her adult life living in relative obscurity. I bet. At a meeting of the American Humane Society in Rochester, New York, in October of 1913, Mary Ellen was in attendance with her savior, Etta, who presented a paper entitled, quote, The Finding of Mary Ellen, end quote. The last line of the paper reads, quote, If the memory of her earliest years is sad, there is this comfort that the cry of her wrongs awoke the world 
to the need of organized relief for neglected and abused children. End quote. Mary Ellen lived to the ripe old age of 92, passing away on October 30, 1956, in Monroe, New York. Her husband, Lewis, passed away much earlier at the age of 72 in 1925. Both are interred at North Chile Rural Cemetery in North Chile, New York. Their daughters, Etta Spencer Shute Pease and Florence Helen Shute Brazer, are also buried in the same cemetery. And if you are interested in learning more about child abuse prevention, you can visit www.preventabuse.com. That was a really important story, but I hated every second of it. Yeah. I hated the fact that a lot of the sources were talking about how the only reason her trial was brought, or her case was brought to trial, was because they treated her as if she was an animal of, like, God's kingdom, and that's why Henry Berg got involved. I don't really agree with that statement, because that might have been how Etta sold the case to him right in the sense not that's not how he he didn't treat it that way though he didn't be like oh yeah she's an animal that falls under our jurisdiction and we need to take care of her no i don't agree with that at all well and that might have had to be the narrative probably that probably had to be the narrative that for people to be like why the hell was he even involved in it right and they already hated him enough that they had to they had to spin it, too, so that he didn't ruin her life because he was so polarizing. Yeah. It's, no. I, I think the first really shocking thing to me, though, was when Etta, Etta's first attempt going to a pastor. Like, what, would he have done something if she would have spun it as? They couldn't. And I'm sure part of it was, if we do this, we could potentially lose funding. Yeah. Or lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they were a religious nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't think it was a matter of him being like, that's not God's will. But it was a matter of, like, he they couldn't do anything. My hands are tied. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of the feedback was, is that we want to help, but we, we just can't. don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know how to do it. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. I've always heard my foster family say that family is so important, but the people that hurt me the most was my own family. The foster care system has no easy answers, only hard questions. Bonus Babies is a podcast that explores the daunting complexity of foster care by hearing from kids forced to navigate that maze. And when I finally reached, like, the head of the snake, the head of the snake is telling me, you called too late. I'm Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a court-appointed special advocate. We're called CASAs, and we volunteer with youth in foster care. My job is to be the child's voice. You'll hear raw, hard-hitting stories of trauma from kids in care. You're not going to jump me in like I don't want a gangbang. Like, I'm never going to be from the gang. But more importantly, you'll hear stories of triumph. And we'll learn these children are adaptable, resourceful, and amazingly resilient. I remember thinking to myself, even when I won, I was like, this is cool. But I don't feel happy. It was just like... This is what you do to get another scholarship. I also talk to attorneys, social workers, caregivers, parents, and more 
about what's really happening to these kids. Stories about kids in care permeate our pop culture. Superman grew up in a foster family. And shows like This Is Us, The Fosters, and even Guardians of the Galaxy catapult these narratives into our living rooms. The Bonus Babies podcast continues that mission. We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. Please donate today. On a lighter note, this week's podcast plug is the Bonus Babies podcast from the Asa Network. The Bonus Babies podcast is the only one of its kind that features the compelling, true-life, hard-hitting stories of youth with a lived foster care experience and the people who care for them, all via the unique 360-degree lens of a court-appointed special advocate or a CASA volunteer, whose host, Jane Amelia Larson. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. We will have a link to her show in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Awesome. And we have another listener question this week. Whoa, okay. From our fan account. Did I tell you about this? What? We have a fan Twitter no, account. No, we don't. Yes, we do. Do you know who this do you know who it is? No. I've talked to them, but I don't know who they are. But it's called Yield Crime Out of Context. So they'll Stop. take snippets of things that we say during Stop. episodes. And they'll, like, tweet it. <laughs> I have to know. So, like, let me see what one of the most recent ones was. It's not for you, from Maddie. <laughs> oh, no! And one of my quotes is, I'm going to go lay low, grow some wings. <laughs> Maddie, okay, fine. I guess he was reasonable, but he was still a jerk. <laughs> Did you retweet any of them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I retweet all of them. One of the ones you did is, if you're too tall, you just get basketballs thrown at you. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Yield Crime. You should, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I'm going to have a link to their Twitter account in the show notes. If you aren't following them and you like our show as much as they do, you should follow them. This is an anti-bird podcast. I love the smell of fish oil. <laughs> oh my god, my my words are being weaponized against me. <laughs> I can potentially make it better by being stalked by a cat in a tent with a blanket on it. <laughs> Let the record show that Dick was a witch. <laughs> Stop making those dolls out of your hands. <laughs> oh my god. It was one of the witch episodes. <laughs> but anyway, the people that run that account yeah. asked us a question. And they okay. want to know, if you could visit one location you've discussed, which would it be? Oh. One location we've discussed. Definitely not that freaking mountain. <laughs> Screw that village. Yeah. Burn it burn it down and start it over. Yeah, There's not enough not, sage in the universe for that. Yeah, not too short hair, that's for sure. Sorry, Sweden. <laughs> We're not going to come visit. I was going to say, I really want to go to that. No, I want to go to Rome and, and see all the little penis signs. Oh, yeah. If there are any left, the phallic signs. Oh, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. Yeah. I, one, I've never been to Rome. That'd be cool. 
Mm-hmm. I was going to say the the vineyard where the boll weevils were asked to leave. <laughs> I also don't like boll weevils, and I know they haven't left. <laughs> like, yeah, they're, they're still, still there. there. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. I'm trying to think. We've covered a lot of places. Mm-hmm. This is episode 143, so. Hmm. Oh, I want to go to Joe the Quilter's cabin. That would be so cool. And our friend John from the mm-hmm. Everyone Dies in Sunderland podcast, like he lives really close to there. So we could go visit our friends and then yeah, have a wander, o- wander over and check out his cabin or his mm-hmm. cottage. He said the last time that he, when he went there, the ins- you couldn't go inside because they were doing like renovations or something on the inside. Yeah. And it was, it was still kind of mid pandemic too, where. They didn't want people enclosed in spaces, too. Yeah. I think they were, like, reinforcing some stuff. Mm-hmm. So but they didn't want people going in. And I was like, oh. So, yeah. I want to go see Joe the Coulter's cottage. That'd be cool. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. And go see some of our podcast friends across the pond. Bonus. Yeah. All right. What is something good you'd like to share? I started baking more again. Yay. Did and you have a giant-ass my- kitchen. I have, I have a an oven that can do convect baking. So like the kind of baking that they do on Bake Off, like convection oven. It can be a convection oven. So I'm gonna. Is it convection or confection? Convection. V. I I always call it confection. (laughs) I mean, it does. I mean, you know, I can see why you would do that. So. Yeah, convection, just by the way the fan and the heat, the way it moves in the oven. But I am going to make some vanilla bronze with uh, maple buttercream for my fiancé's request. Mm. Very sweet. Can you bring some pandan ones to Easter? Yeah, I need to get more pandan flavoring, but I could do that this week. Yeah, I could make macarons. For Easter. A very nice light treat. And then I will eat all of them. They're so good. Even when they're so like good. Frankenstein level. Even when they look really wonky. And their feet look like they're about to like walk into your life. <laughs> You're like, oh. It's trying. It's trying to die. But I'm really excited. I was going to do that. And I made some banana bread. The recipe itself is was meh. So I got to adjust it. But. Yeah, I, I was baking today, and that's one of my kind of favorite things to do. What about you? What's something good? This week, I got a copy of Karen and Anne's book that they wrote. They're the ladies mm-hmm. over at the Sugar-Coated Murder Podcast. Nice. And they are writing a three-book series about a murder that took place in their hometown. Nice. That's not, that's great. Three books for that? Yeah. I think they're writing like a series because it wasn't the only crime that took place in their town. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to read that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's super nice that they get, they sent that to you. I mean, I paid them for it. <laughs> but uh, I was like, how would a girl go about getting a signed copy of your book right. and paying for said copy of your book? Right. You know, like, here's how you do that. I was like, sweet. So I did it. Because I support my friends. Absolutely. So We don't do favors here. So on that note, shall we? We shall. 
Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at yieldcrimepodcast. If you'd like to support the show but you can't do so financially, you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you leave your ratings and reviews. This week's comes from Apple Podcasts from user C dollar sign E ampersand at symbol exclamation point. <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to say that. So right. it says my go-to every Wednesday. Lindsay and Madison are my go-to every Wednesday since I found them. Since I'm a newer listener, I'm binging the backlog in between. I'm loving nerding out on the Cramboard episodes. They're fun, but you also learn something, and without fail, they're hilarious. Mm-hmm. Thank you, person Thank you so whose much. username I can't say. Yeah, nice username. Mm-hmm. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramport segments. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crap. <laughs>